This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. Our scripture reading from the New Testament this morning will be from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 24 through 34. I will then read a verse from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, uh, as we've been uh, following it for our Advent series. But first, I will read from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 24 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Good morning. If you just have your Bibles open to that Isaiah passage, that we continue to look through those titles of the promised child. But just before we dive into the third title there, the Everlasting Father, let's take a moment and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your house and we gather under your name and we gather to hear your word. And Lord, our hearts are heavy. Life is difficult Many of us are dealing with various types of afflictions and concerns, and yet, Lord, we heard this morning that our friend and sister, Jen, lost her father, and we pray for Jen, we pray for her family, we pray that your presence would be there consoling them, and that you would allow us, Lord, to be your hands and feet, and that we would be there um, in just prayer and, and holding up this dear sister and her family. Lord, I think this morning of the many widows and widowers, as we come closer now yet to Christmas, we're in that season, and Lord, I know loneliness can be real. And so I pray that you would strengthen and and hold up these dear brothers and sisters, Lord, who have faced loss. We pray, Lord, that we again, your 
hands and feet would be active in supporting the church that you have bought with your own blood. Lord, we're thankful that we can gather in the midst of the trials and afflictions of life, that we can gather here, we can hear your word, that we can sing your praises, and Lord, that our hearts can be changed, they can be warmed, warmed to you and the things of the gospel. And we pray for that this morning. We pray that we would be changed. We pray, Lord, that we would grow more in love with you and that truly joy would be seen in our faces and our lives, that we would be people of hope and people of love and peace. And Lord, all these different aspects of what this season means, that Lord, they would be seen as the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray, Lord, now as we hear your word, I pray that as your mouthpiece, that I would not say more nor less than you've given me to say, but I pray that I'd be faithful to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Every relationship has terms that must be defined. From friendship to marriage, every relationship has terms that must be defined. Go back in your mind to your early dating relationships. The terms there had to be defined. You would often hear questions like, what does this mean? What are we doing? Are we a couple or not? The, the, the aspect of defining the terms. What is it we're doing here? Think about the more serious relationship of marriage. Hence, a groom and a bride express their vows before God. They express their vows before their friends and their family, expressing the commitment, the terms of the relationship. Hence, the more serious the relationship, the more serious the terms. How important, then, are the terms in regard to our relationship with our Savior, our Creator, our Sustainer? This is exactly what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah 9. He's describing the titles of the promised Messiah, the one who would come in the form of a child. The titles that he's already expressed are titles like Wonderful Counselor, Titles like Mighty God. And now we come to the title Everlasting Father. Defining the terms of Everlasting Father is important. A lot of things may shoot through our mind as we hear that title applied to the promised child. In fact, it may even seem a little odd to call a child father. But understand it's that who that child is and what that child would do. The term father, behind that term, is a relation in our relationship to the promised one. So it's about relationship. It's not the merging of the person of the son with the person of the father in regards to the Trinity. Don't let your mind go there. That's not what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is referring to the term father here as in relationship to the promised one. I think our friend Thomas Payson actually helps us out here as he explains this. He says, he, the promised child, as he's referring to him, he is the covenant Lord. He's the spiritual father of all of his people. Just as Adam was the covenant Lord and natural father of the human race. What Payson is really trying to help us see is that the idea packed into the term father is about federal headship. It's about the role of this child and who he was in relation to us. In the ancient Near East, when the prophet Isaiah was writing, the term father was used for a king. 
It was a relational term. The idea was that the king would be carrying responsibility. There would be a call for fidelity, responsibility. The king and the vassal would have a relationship, a relationship that would be cut in covenant. It would be about a promise. The vassal, the servants, would promise allegiance to the king, promise obedience to their sovereign. And yet the king would promise care and protection. And that was the idea, this centered in relational commitment. The idea of the role regarded the king and his people. The term father in relationship to this promised child, understand, is one of kingship, headship. We see this in places like Romans chapter 5. Verse 17 says this, For if because of one man's trespass, a reference to Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Notice that just as in Adam all die, so in Christ are all made alive. Fidelity, headship, kingship, protection. Salvation, that's what's captured in this term, Father. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning at verse 45, he says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Look at the fidelity of the relationship. The covenant bonding between the king and his people. Throughout scripture we see this again and again and again. As goes the king, so goes the people. Fidelity, relationship, headship. Hence it made sense that they would call the king their father. But here in our terms and titles for the promised child, it's not just simply that he is a father, it's quantified. He is the everlasting Father. See, this term everlasting makes it explicit that the fatherly, kingly relationship is with one who is divine. Think about that for a moment. The relationship we have with Christ, yes, he is our king, but he is the divine king. He is the eternal king. He is the Father of eternity. He is the one who possesses eternity. Church, understand this. There is only one who has always existed and will always exist. In Psalm 90, the psalmist there actually says these words. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are the God. From everlasting 
to everlasting. This word everlasting gives the king's subjects great assurance, doesn't it? Because it tells us that our allegiance is not in vain. This king will always rule. His kingdom will never be overrun. His fidelity to his promise will last forever. Therefore, we should be assured because we have this child, this promised one, as the everlasting father. And yet this title also captures for us the two natures of the one person. See, he is the God-man. He's both divine and human. And it's united in this promised child. See, the good news is that this child brings together God and man. He is, in that sense, our eternal father. He is the king, our representative, our head. And yet his kingdom shall have no end. And yet with this relationship comes responsibility. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. We saw that with Adam. The failures of Adam brought death upon the human race. But the obedience of Christ brings everlasting life. I want to share with you this morning some of the ways that you are blessed as God's people. I'm going to share a lot of scripture, and it's important that I do that because I want you to see these aren't just my opinions. This is what the Word of God proclaims that are yours in Christ. We begin with that passage in Matthew 6 that was read earlier by Dom. A passage which tells us of the blessing we have. The idea that ultimately that we have no reason to be anxious because this king provides He provides for you everything that is necessary for life. Hear the words of the Lord. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Isn't it powerful to read scripture like that in light of his kingship and his provision That he who has a cattle on a thousand hills won't let you go in need. He will supply all your needs, not all your wants. Many of us probably, like a kid on Christmas morning, may want that Red Ryder BB gun and wonder where it's at. But in life, God provides all of our needs. And yet it's not just simply the physical things of this world that he provides No, actually, he actually describes the relationship of the king with his church, calling the church the bride of the king. 
And there's benefit there. There's blessing there. Listen to all the ways in which he provides for his bride. He provides her identity. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Your identity. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme of identity of the church in Ephesians 2. In verse 19 he says, So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Your identity. Your identity isn't in the things of the world. Your identity is in Christ. He is our groom. He is our king. And yet he provides for his church oneness. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Oneness is ours. And that oneness is our identity. Baptism, after all, is a naming ceremony. We're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oneness with him. Mind-blowing to think of the relationship between Christ, the King, and His bride as it signifies the oneness of marriage, the bonding together. And He leaves His church with a gift. Yes, He ascended to heaven, but it says that He promised the Holy Spirit. Listen to John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I have told you. The Holy Spirit is a gift of the groom to his bride. And yet, he provides even leaders. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, he gave them apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Well, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Everything he's called us to, he's equipped us in and with through the work of the Holy Spirit and the leaders he's provided us. And yet in his love, his love for his bride, we're told there's also discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone he receives. And yet in that discipline, he also provides peace. John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace. In all of these ways, he's provided for his bride. And yet we haven't even gotten to the aspects of the eternal life we have, which he purchased on the cross. I could go on and on, scripture after scripture, but I believe the catechism sums it well. 
When it says, what are all the benefits in this life that we possess because of Christ? The answer, justification, adoption, sanctification, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, perseverance till the end. Saying, these are all yours, church, because of the blessing you have of the everlasting Father. And some may say, but what about at death? What benefit is there for us at death? The catechism again helps us as it describes for us those benefits that are ours even in the face of death. It says the souls of believers are made perfect in death. It says that we do immediately pass into glory. It goes on to say that our bodies are united with Christ even though they rest in the grave. We're promised that at the resurrection we too shall be resurrected. We're told that we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment. And finally, we're told that we will be perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. These are the blessings that belong to his church because he provides. And church, understand, he not only provides these blessings, he protects these blessings. He keeps them for us. After all, we read in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What a beautiful promise that we are kept by the shepherd. His eye is forever on us. He knows us by name. We hear his voice. He defends us. He defends us from all our and his enemies. Places like Psalm 46 tell us God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in a time of trouble. We can go to God because of Christ. In Psalm 91, verse 2, it says, I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. We have hope, even in the midst of difficulties, because our, our King not only provides, He protects He is truly our everlasting Father. And He protects and He provides everlastingly. So what's our responsibility in this? What's the appropriate response to this? Church, the appropriate response of any child who lives in a home where he's loved and cared for is joy. The joy expresses one's heart. Joy is what we've been called to. In fact, this third week of Advent, we're celebrating joy. And joy is the appropriate response of one who receives all these benefits from their king. In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Joy, the battle for joy. We prayed, we confessed it this morning as Jack led our congregation in recognizing that we're not always joyful like we should be. And I've given you an abundant amount of reasons you should be joyful, but we're not. The truth is, oftentimes we find ourselves very dissatisfied, very unhappy, very sad. Our friend Stephen Charnock He provides some very good words and very good news to us, even those of us who fail at this joy thing. 
He says simply this, the ingratitude of man stops not the current of God's bounty. Let me read that again. The ingratitude of man stops not the current of God's bounty. God overflows his love upon us. In Psalm 23, we're we're told of the overflowing provision of the shepherd upon the sheep. Even our ingratitude does not stop his bounty. He loves us that deeply, but it reminds us how appropriate joyful response really is. In Psalm 16, the psalmist remarks, he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Church, that's a joy you possess because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is joy. Joy has been given to the church because we have a king who provides and protects and his kingdom shall never be overrun. His kingdom is everlasting and therefore we are blessed forever. One of the most poignant passages in scripture is John 16. It's this passage where Jesus is speaking. He says something pretty profound. In verse 20, he says, your sorrow would be turned to joy. Now He's speaking here of many things specifically regarding what is about to happen to him. But what's interesting in that text is he tells them that your sorrow will be swallowed up in joy. Our sorrow is swallowed up in the joy of Christ the everlasting Father, a joy we have in him because of who he is and all he provides. Church, there is good news. There is great news in this text of Isaiah 9 as it describes for you the terms and titles of the child who would come, the everlasting Father, the joy he would provide, a joy that was understood by the angels, In Luke 2, a joy that was understood by the shepherds in Luke 2, a joy that we can and should possess because the child has in fact come. And because this child has come, life is good in Christ. Life is blessed in Christ. I've heard it said Jesus provides. Jesus provides to the broken He is a healer. To the lonely, he is ever-present. To the poor, he is a provider. To the anxious, he is a counselor. To the hurting, he is a comforter. To the sinner, he is a savior. To the lost, he is a rescuer. To the created, he is life itself. He is God with us. This is the good news of the promised one. And we can have that joy. Apostle Paul deals with this. In Romans chapter 8, as he talks about the power and the sovereignty of God, the kingship, the reign and the rule of God, and what that means for your lives. And he writes this tremendous ending in Romans chapter 8, where he describes for us that we are more than conquerors. Listen to his words as he describes the victory that is yours in Christ. Verse 31 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The psalmist says it well. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. In church, when the psalmist says that, and he uses that phrase, steadfast love, he's saying the covenantal love of God. His kingship, his everlasting fatherhood lasts forever. You're not in want. You're not in need. He is the provider of all good things. He is the promised one. And church, he has come. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the reminder of the good news of the coming of the Christ. Lord, we are thankful for the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. We are thankful for the Prince of Peace. Lord, we are thankful for all that that means in terms of our relationship with you the titles that you have, that you possess of who you are and what you have accomplished, it means good news for your church. We are a blessed people. And Lord, we are a thankful people. We praise your name and we praise you for you and you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said. Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.